welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. super excited about this series. Um, I kind of feel at a loss. Like we, we spent 31 weeks in the series Eat This Book and we sort of walked our way all the way through the scriptures, which was, uh, I think, a, always a really good experience whenever you get a chance to do that. Um, but we turn our attention to a new series this morning and uh, we're in, I'm entitling it Wells and Fences. And I hope that this becomes more clear as we sort of navigate these next seven weeks. Uh, we'll take today and then six weeks after this and the goal of this is really to kind of explore um, what, what would be called the six affirmations which are at the center of the Covenant Church. So if you're new, um, welcome to Awaken, but uh, we are a part of the Evangelical Covenant Church and we're right in the middle of this process where we are, are sort of transitioning from uh, functioning and being a church plant uh, and sort of at the three-year mark, this is what happens. And so we're being welcomed into uh, the Covenant as a congregation and so we're going to explore, I figure if we're going to sit down at the table with a group of folks, we should probably know what food we're eating um, or what kind of family we're getting ourselves into. And actually, many, uh, I, one of the most common questions I get is, what, what denomination are we a part of again again? Uh, what, what's the name of that thing? It's a convent or I'm not really sure. Uh, it's not a convent. It's called the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, and and I, I, I feel the need to preface this whole series with at least this. Um, for me, I didn't grow up. Uh, denominations really have never been important to me growing up or my experience as a Christian. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to even uh, sort of embark on a series like this to sort of wave the denominational flag. That's really not the spirit of why we're doing this. Um, the denominations are certainly important, but um, ultimately, and I, I guess maybe we'll, we'll probably come back to this again and again, um, our allegiance is to no other kingdom other than the one of Jesus. And our allegiance is to no other way in which we live other than the way of Jesus. Uh, that's our primary conviction. That's the one that sort of trumps all others. And so to frame this properly, we have to remember that this is a secondary thing. This is a uh, what kind of family or who the family that we're connecting ourselves to is certainly important, but I feel uh, uh, very um, compelled to remind us that our allegiance is ultimately to the kingdom of Jesus. So um, I guess this morning um, I want to ask the question or ask a question that will kind of frame our time together. And the question is this, what kind of church do we want to be or what kind of church are we? As we begin this series, um, certainly some questions of who are we, um, where have we been, and where are we going um, are really important. I would submit that in order to navigate the future, you have to be able to understand the past first. And so as we kind of begin this, uh, there are, we felt like it was a good point um, as we sort of come into summer and we have this momentous occasion that we're going through to stop and ask some really important questions. Who are we? What kind of church uh, are we? And, and really, the, the, the question I want to frame it this morning is, what kind of church do we want to be? And by asking that, I'm not asking necessarily about denominational affiliation or church polity, while those things are important. The question is really getting at DNA. What kind of community? What's at the center? What's, what are the DNA strands that run through this community that make it unique and make it specific and make it awaken? And so to do that, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 4, if you would, please. Uh, John chapter 4, and we're going to read a story about a woman who is found at a well. Before we do that, I want to frame this, because um, I think it's important to understand if, we, if we're going to start here in this text in John 4, something is at play 
in John 4 that has been at play since the beginning. So if you'll just rewind with me, if you will, for just a moment. Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of God creating the heavens and the earth, creates everything that we see around us, eventually ends up creating Adam and Eve, the first humans. And in this situation, we find Adam and Eve um, in this, I guess, best could be best described as shalom, this peace, harmony that exists between God and humans and the world in which we live. And there's this beautiful sort of ever uh, life-giving reciprocity between God and us and the world that we live in that the Hebrews called shalom. And Adam and Eve play a very particular role in creation. It's one, and the Hebrew gets at, it's one where they're asked to be stewards and caretakers of, almost like and, and they're endowed by the creator with this ability to create new life. So there's this ongoing partnership between Adam and Eve and the first humans and the God who made them. So, and, and this relationship that they're in is, uh, they're sustained by and they're in intimate dependence on and with God. <clears throat> and arguably in Genesis 1 and 2, and this is the point I want to get at here, arguably in Genesis 1 and 2, this relationship that they're in is one that did not include the knowledge of good and evil, right? You remember this, the story, there's this one tree at the beginning in the middle. God says, don't eat of this tree. If you, uh, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so arguably, Genesis 1 and 2, part of their experience did not include, or their experience did not include this knowledge of good and evil. And it didn't, re- it didn't include the, response- <clears throat> excuse me, the responsibility of being the arbiters or the judges of that which is good and evil. Genesis 3, of course, introduces us to a new variable where Adam and Eve choose to eat from this tree. And in doing so, they do gain this access. They gain something that they didn't have before, that being the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to judge and to decide that which is good and evil, or having some sort of final say. And I want to suggest that at this moment, something fundamental happens for the first humans, and a shift takes place. And it's something that ends up being, and is continually played out from the beginning of um, Genesis 3 until even now. And it's this idea that when we as humans hold the keys and become the judges or the arbiters or the final say-sowers, that it doesn't produce life. That this is something that we were never intended to have. This is something that God intends to hold, and we respond in sort of loving faithfulness in creation. So, if in fact we do hold these keys, and we see this played out through, through all through scriptures, we see it right at, at Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, we see David and Saul, we see um, Samuel or Joseph and his brothers, and all throughout the Old Testament's Certainly you could go on and note cases in the New Testament, I would argue that this would be one of them, where we find um, a group of people or humans who have become the ones who say so, the ones who are the arbiters or the ones who decide. So Genesis, or I'm sorry, John chapter 4, verse 4 begins this way. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from a journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Not a, not a random uh, note there, by the way. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who, had, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he also, as did, his, or as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go back or go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, at a time, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who speak to you, I am he. Pray with me. God, as we uh, open up this text and this story, and as we embark on this journey, uh, God, I ask that you would Uh, take the things that are in my heart, the things that have been ruminating uh, in my mind, and God, you would make them yours, that whatever is not of you would just fall off the stage, that it wouldn't be remembered, and that that which is of you, that which is life-giving and fruitful for this community and for us who follow Jesus and those who are interested, God, that you would make those things loud and clear. I pray this by uh, the power of the Spirit and in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. So this story uh, tells of a woman who is at this well, and this woman, by all intents and purposes, is outside of in. So if in is kind of the place in which we all seek to be culturally, politically, socially, religiously, this woman is on the outside of in. She's outside of in culturally. She's a woman, right? So she's outside of in. This is an ancient Near Eastern culture. Very, very patriarchal. Women didn't have rights. They didn't, couldn't vote. Their testimony wasn't admissible in court. She's on the outside of in as a woman. She's on the outside of in religiously. She's a Samaritan. Uh, if you don't know about the Samaritans, these are essentially people that have, uh, in the worst sense, they were... As, Uh, referred to as half-breeds. They were folks who intermarried or non-Jewish people who intermarried with Jews and the result was this group of people called the Samaritans. They were hated by the Jewish people. Um, there were, there's number, a number of prayers that are listed uh, in ancient literature about rabbis who would pray, I, I'm, thank God I'm not a woman or a Samaritan or something else. So this, this lady, as a Samaritan, she's outside of in religiously and culturally. She's outside of in morally and ethically. Jesus says, you've been with five husbands. This guy that you're with now is not your husband. Uh, to be a woman of this kind uh, was, was, was not very, um, uh, let's just say, not cool. Um, this, is a, this is a very, very 
unfortunate and uh, um, looked down upon place for a woman to be in. So culturally, religiously, morally, ethically. And she finds herself at the town well at noon, at midday, the hottest part of the day. And if you do some research on this, um, scholars would say what John is essentially getting at is this woman didn't go to the well with all of the other women in the town. Um, Has anybody ever been to a third world country before where they have to actually go to get water at a well? Anybody ever done that before? couple of you, okay? So last summer, or maybe, yeah, two summers ago, I got to go to Africa. And uh, the whole, like, you know, uh, phenomenon of, of females is an interesting deal um, uh, in our culture. You know, women and how they do things in our culture, we talk about they go to the bathroom together, they talk more, they're sort of more in tune with their feelings and all this other kind of stuff. But when I went to Africa, it was so amazing to watch these women because there was this, there was this, like, camaraderie between these ladies as they would do whatever it is they'd set out to do, whether it was cook food or prepare a meal or do this or that, or when they would go to get water. It was sort of this mob mentality and there was this very, the sense of kinship among them as women. It was, fun, it was very interesting to watch this take place. John notes that this woman finds herself at the well at noon by herself. So the hottest part of the day, she goes there by herself for all uh, everything in the text is leading, leading us to the point of, of recognizing that this woman is on the outside of all of the cultural and religious and political and social fences that have been built, so to speak. I think I'm on the next page, sorry. Um, and and Jesus' response here, Jesus' response is really what I want to sort of uh, home in on this morning. He simply offers her an encounter with living water. Now, you know, Jesus is the living water. He is the Messiah. He's the one that he's offering the encounter with. But his response isn't, do this, don't do that, get inside this well, or get inside this fence, or do all of these things so that you can be... His response is just simply the offering of himself. And he says, if you're, for those that are thirsty, if you find yourself thirsty, and this woman does, if you come and you, you drink from this water, you will never thirst again. Um, so I, I'm gonna, um, I want to try to tease this out a little bit this morning. So follow me, if you will, a little whiteboard action here. Imagine, if, if you will, that you have inha- in- inherited a whole bunch of land, like a thousand acres, okay, and sort of be- the beautiful Australian outback. I have a sister in Australia. I always want to go there, so we're going to go there today. So you've inherited a thousand acres of land in the Australian outback, and with that, you've inherited a whole bunch of cattle, all kinds of livestock. I mean, there's thousands of them, right? We can't put them all on here, but they're all marked by the X's, okay? You've inherited all this land, and there's all these cattle. Now, there's two scenarios here. In one, well, I should say in both, the question is, how do you protect these cattle? How do you make sure that they get what they need? How do you make sure that they're fed, that they're cared for, that whatever is outside that's uh, sort of threatening them doesn't get in, and so they don't get out and wander off? One philosophy is you build a fence, right? You hem them in and you build a fence so that the cattle can't get out and so that whatever is outside can't get in so that you know where they are so that you can feed them, you can protect them, you can care for their needs. You build a fence. Now this gets interesting because you've inherited a thousand acres of the Australian outback. And so if you're going to build a fence around the entirety of the thousand acres, it's going to take you a ton of time and a ton of effort and a ton of money and all kinds of resources. So you either pay the money and do it, or you make, them, you make the, 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 the space in which they live a little bit smaller, right? Let's call it 10 acres. Then there's all kinds of other unexplored territory. Now, the other option, the other way to sort of skin this cat, if you will, any cat fans in the room? I'm not, all right. Uh, I had dogs growing up. I'm not a real fan of cats. But. 
Evidently, they say they're smarter than dogs. Is this true? No. Yeah, okay. So the other, the other way to do this, the other way to do this, right, you can either build a huge fence around the deal or you dig a well in the center. You dig a well, and the animals that, that need and are sustained by and cannot live without this water you'll soon find out that they don't wander too far from that which gives them life. Now, transition this with me, if you will, for just a second. And imagine that these are not cattle, but these are people. And these are not fences, but these are religious beliefs. I want to suggest that if you think, and let's just use the last hundred years of our history, okay? If you think about religion and you think about religious communities and the way in which they do life together, the most common response is fences, right? So it's dancing, drinking, uh, atonement theology, baptism. uh, Shout them out. What are the other sort of markers? Cards, yeah, Lord knows that's not good. <laughs> because cards leads to dancing, and dancing leads to drinking, and we know where that leads, right? Uh, it, what else? M- ways in which we've defined ourselves religiously. Things that become important. Sexuality, women, and their role, right? Okay, so you see the point here. These become religious beliefs, and these are the people. And this is essentially how we function as communities. Now, I want to suggest, if you've never heard of this term before, this is a bounded set. And this on the other side is what would be called a centered set. And the question, two very fundamentally different questions in each of these paradigms. The question in the bounded set is, do you believe like we believe? Or do you believe what we believe? And if you do, here's the gate, and it swings open. And if you don't, you're on the outside of in, right? Where the Samaritan woman finds herself and where many of us have found ourselves in our lives. Do you believe what we believe? And if you do, entrez-vous. If you don't, you can wait just outside until you ascribe to whatever set of beliefs is here. Now, I'm guessing, if I know this community well, that many of us have found that this, doesn't, this didn't work and it didn't produce life. In its worst form, this is, this is fundamentalism. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't positives to the idea of fences, right? Every metaphor breaks down here. So don't try to you know, sit there going, well, what about this and what about that? Don't poke holes in it. Just try to understand the spirit of what I'm getting at here. I'm guessing that many of us are here because this didn't work. It wasn't life-giving. And for whatever reason, you may have found yourself on the outside of in, but yet you were still concerned, commi- uh, convicted, committed to, or at least interested in this Jesus person, which is supposedly at the center of it. The question on this side is not necessarily do you believe what we believe, but what is at the center? And what direction are you headed, right? So in this paradigm, uh, what's, what's, what's important is the direction you're headed and what's at the center. Not necessarily do you believe what we believe and are you in or are you out, but what's at the center 
Let me go on record. Do you get this? You taping this? Let me go on record as we begin this series uh, and sort of exploring sort of what's at the center of the covenant. Um, I want to go on record and say that at Awaken, we're not interested in building fences. We're not interested in building fences of belief that determine who's in and who's out. At all. And so if that's something that is, that, that, like you have this insatiable desire for, one, I want to challenge you as a pastor to think through some of that. But two, you might be really frustrated here. Not interested in building fences. Now, this is not a license to do whatever you want. For those of you who are like, yeah, get rid of the fences, kick them out, let's do this, yeah. This is not a license to do whatever you want. Because what is at the center is not willy-nilly whatever. It's not like postmodern relativism. You know, for your, if it's true for you, it's true for you, then everybody can define. That's not what we're talking about here. What is at the center is the life, death, and resurrection and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah. So if you're journeying and, and actually moving towards the center then you're becoming more and more like Jesus. And if you pay attention to the Gospels, the invitation of Jesus is to death. <laughs> okay, It's not to do whatever you want. It's not to define your own way of being. It's to say this way, this path, this way of doing it is, is the, the, the actual human experience. Paul talks about Jesus as the second Adam, the firstborn of new creation. Jesus' life and teachings and way about being human is what we're after. And so when our lives don't conform to that, then we feel the dissonance of that. And hopefully the folks who are pursuing the center of this in community have the access and the responsibility and the, the bridges of truth or the bridges that have been built who will bear the weight of truth of those kinds of conversations. So it's not a license to do whatever you want. Hear that very loud and clear. Here are some things that I've learned about fences. Uh, and again, not all, the, just work with the metaphor here. I'm not trying to say that every, you know, every, you know, spoken belief or said belief is bad. That's not what I'm saying. But fences, as as we're using the metaphor, here's some things I've learned about fences. Fences automatically create a position of power and a position of weakness. They automatically, by the nature of the system, they create a position of power and a position of weakness. If you're on the inside, you have the power. If you're on the outside, you don't. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, has any, well, I'll tell this story. When I was in college, I had a friend who didn't know Jesus and uh, was, you know, in the midst of some, some Christians and, and somehow got the sense that that person was talked about as a lost person. And I remember having this conversation with that, my friend who didn't know Jesus, who didn't yet follow Christ, and who just at one point said, I just find it so assumptive and arrogant that you talk about me as a lost person, that I'm the lost one, that I'm the one that needs to be found, that I'm sort of the one that, that I'm on the outside and you're on the inside and you got to somehow figure out how to get me in. Now that's the worst case scenario and that certainly wasn't the intention of most people's hearts, right? But imagine, walk a mile in their shoes. If they don't think that whatever is on the inside is worth finding, then they're not lost. You're lost, right? It's a matter of perspective, But the system, by the very nature of it, creates a position of power and a position of weakness. The system, in and of itself, shuts down the possibility of partnership. 
If you don't believe, and, and I've actually seen this play out among, in religious communities, and it kills me. If you don't believe what we believe, then we essentially like can't, we can't partner with you, we can't do whatever, we can't get on board with you, we can't you know, hook our horses up to that wagon or hook our wagons up to that horse or whatever the metaphor is, right? It's like, well, no, you, you, you're, 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 you believe in Islam or you're Muslims and so we're Christians and so we'll do our thing. And, but we're talking about like, you know, feeding hungry people. Well, you know, outside of it. We're talking about, you know, people in sex trafficking and, and human, tra- well, you know, uh, often this, is this, trunk, this sort of eliminates the possibility for partnership because the question of what do you believe or do you believe what we believe isn't answered correctly or can't be answered correctly. By the nature of the system, it creates a, an other or a them. This bounded sets by nature of the system create an other. And if you follow history and you look at the way in which every conflict, every war, whether it be political, religious, whatever, in history, I would submit to you that every single one of these wars or conflicts is predicated on the, the, uh, the presence of an other. The presence of somebody who's at fault, who's, and this is, this is, no, this is no different than in Jesus' day. The Pharisees thought that Jesus, you know, Yahweh hadn't come back to Israel because of all the sin or because of what, it was the other, it was somebody. And the system in and of itself creates an other. Uh, if, if any of you, every now and again, I, my brothers listen to like uh, political talk radio and I just think, well, I'll just turn it on just to hear it. And I just get so fed up with it so quickly because it feeds off of this idea that there's an other, that there's a them. If you, if, just, just as a uh, sort of sociological um, exercise, turn on like political talk radio and count the number of times they say them and us. That's a bounded set. They're outside of in. They're them. They're the other. And that is always a very dangerous situation. Fences or bounded sets create barriers that keep something in and keep something out. And the fence, get this, the fence becomes the means by which we determine what is good or what is bad, what is in or what is out. The fence protects what's inside. The fence is typically created by and for those who have resources and assets which is to say that typically those in power decide what the fences are. Now, I want to end a little bit more positively than creating, you know, constructing a straw man and then beating the snot out of it, because anybody can do that, right? Wells. Why a well? If, we're, if we don't want to be about building fences, what is it about a well? Wells attract people who are thirsty. I have sat with many of you and, and, and many who, who have wandered through Awaken and have wandered off to other places or whatever, but I have sat with so many who have in one way, shape, or form talked about being thirsty, being tired, being hungry. Wells attract people that are thirsty. Wells are something that we tap into by that I mean, what a well does is it taps into an already present resource and, and, and table of water. And, in, and because of that, they're sort of out of our control, right? 
wells tap into something. They're not something we construct or we build, but it's something that we tap into that exists, whether we believe, whether, whether we know it or not. Wells are accessible from every direction. And if you go back to the whole cattle metaphor, wells keep living things close to them without a need for fences. At Awaken, as we navigate what kind of church are we, what kind of church do we want to be, what kind of community do we want to be, I want to I offer the possibility and the, and the paradigm of a very centered set where tenaciously we keep the life, death, resurrection of Jesus at the center. Here is a couple things I think as, as I wrap this up that this will force us to do. If, if this is true, if we want to if we want to walk this out and we want to do this instead of this, and truth be told, everybody, this is a lot easier. This is a lot easier. We know who's in, who's out. We know what defines everything. We, it's, it's not as messy. This is very difficult work because it's dependent on the Spirit of God. It is absolutely dependent. If evangelicals could be critiqued, I think one of them would be that we sort of were... were, were, were we like two of the three in the Trinity, right? Father and the Son. We're really excited about them. The Spirit's kind of like, whoa, that's a weird deal. You know, when the people start doing all that crazy stuff, falling over, speaking in tongues, it's kind of like, wow. But the Father and the Son, like, I'm in. Totally in. This depends on the Spirit of God. It, without it, we're sunk. If we're going to do this, we have to trust that whatever is, that we have to trust that the source is, is what it is. If you, as you read the story in John 4, this woman comes and Jesus says, listen, what I'm offering is living water. And she consumes it, she takes it in, and she's changed, she's transformed, and at least what we know from the story, her life is set in a new trajectory, in a new direction. If we, if we adopt this and we say this is the kind of community we want to be, then we have to absolutely be, we have to trust that what is at the center actually is true and this is how it works. And as long as we're pointing people to the well and we ourselves are going to the well for sustenance and for life, then we need not be so uptight about so many darn things. Amen, Micah. <laughs> Preach it, brother. Come on now. <laughs> oh, man. Hanging out with these covenant church planters uh, with all the diversity, man, they just go for it. And I just wonder, like, what would happen if I ever preached in a setting like that where people were talking back to me? It could be, a tr- it might be like a locomotive, you know, like this train is, I think I would totally feed off of it. <laughs> having, a, having a well at the center requires us to trust that the well is what produces life. And if we believe that it produces life, if, the, if following Jesus gives life, but we have to believe that that's true. Otherwise, otherwise we need these to keep everybody in, in line. And, and maybe lastly, I would say, in, if we're gonna, if, if to do this, not only do we have to trust what's in the center but we have to give up control. Can I get in your space for just a second? We have to give up control in some sense 
not give up control willy-nilly, anything goes, not what I'm saying, but give up control in the sense that we are not the arbiters. Remember the story, Genesis 1 and 2. What was not a part of Adam and Eve's original vocational intent or what was not on their job description? This is, and and the, the New Testament goes on to say this, that the Holy Spirit is that which convicts of sin. It's not our job. It's not my job as the pastor. It's not your job to point out all the ways in which whoever is in and whoever is out. Demonstrate and announce. Demonstrate and announce. Demonstrate and announce. Can I say it again? Demonstrate the love of God that you've experienced in Jesus Christ and announce it. Demonstrate and announce. Demonstrate and announce. That's what we do. We show people with with tangible ways, with our hands and with our feet. This is what we've experienced because of the love of Jesus. Demonstrate. Now, here's, here's why. Demonstrate and announce. That's what we do. And in order to do this, we have to give up control in some sense. And the longer I'm in ministry, the, longer, the, the more I'm convinced that humans, and especially religious ones, like love control and certainty and black and white. And, man, just didn't give life. Just in my experience. And you can determine whether or not it does. But I think you're here maybe because you don't think it does. We started with the question of what kind of church do we want to be? And I guess if we could begin this series in any way, I would bring us back to something that we've said over and over and over again. And it's that at the center of this community and what it means to be a part of this community is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are we pointing people to the well? Are we inviting them to that well? Are we, are we ourselves getting life from that place and not other places? The task before us is a really daunting one, I think. You know, I, maybe every generation says this about their task. <laughs> but navigating this post-Christian, post, post-evangelical, post-modern context and offering the life, death, resurrection of Jesus... And I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, again, I didn't grow up denominational, you know, f- flag waver. But the more and more I get into these affirmations that we're going to be studying over the next couple weeks, the more I say, man, this is like, this is, this is a, a very small center. But it is, I believe, the life-giving stuff. And so I guess I want to just invite you to ponder and think about uh, your own journey as it relates to these kind of paradigms and maybe just whatever the Spirit's doing for you uh, to consider, to ponder, to wonder about how do we live this out? How, do we, how are we totally and 100% dependent on the Spirit of God present at the ch- in the church with Jesus' life, death, resurrection at the center of this community? Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.